Shalom and marhaba and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. The high holidays are finally over and everyone is slowly but surely getting back to business, including the business of the upcoming Israeli election fast approaching on November 1st. On today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the one issue that will likely make or break this election in either direction, and that's the Arab-Israeli vote. To help us make sense of it all, we have with us today Mohammed Darausheh, an expert on Arab-Jewish relations in Israel, the director of strategy at the Givat Chaviva Center for a Shared Society, and a former campaign advisor to various Arab political parties. But first, a few housekeeping notes before we get into it. Uh, first, we'll be hosting a big Israeli election video briefing on November 7th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where I'll be joined by Israel Policy Forum's very own Chief Policy Officer, Michael Koplow, along with, as always, Shira Efron, IPF's Diane and Guilford Glazer Foundation Director of Policy Research, where we'll discuss whether Bibi will be back or will Lapid's leadership last. See what we did there? Uh, so that's happening November 7th. You can register to attend at the link in the show notes. Uh, and number two, we're also conducting a survey to learn more about you, our podcast listeners. So please take a few minutes to fill out the survey, uh, which is also in the show notes. It should be quick and painless, uh, but important for our purposes. And finally, before we get to Mohammed, a few quick thoughts for me about the big issue that dominated the news over here uh, during the holiday period, which was the maritime border deal between Israel and Lebanon. So through the good offices of U.S. mediator Amos Holkstein, the two countries, still officially at war, were able to cut a deal last week to end this decade-long saga. The disputed maritime border in the eastern Mediterranean between Israel and Lebanon will now be officially marked, and the fate of a contested offshore natural gas field in this area called Kana Sidon Field will be settled. Uh, Lebanon, according to the deal, will get the field, but Israel will get some 17% of any future revenues from the field. And on the flip side, Israel's own nearby gas fields, called Karish, will be able to go online in the coming weeks without any threat of Hezbollah attack. And Lebanon also has de facto recognized Israel's maritime security zone, which is closer to the coast off of northern Israel. So why all the fuss? Why was this such a big deal? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, the agreement quickly turned into a very divisive political issue inside Israel, ahead of the election especially, with opposition leader Bibi Netanyahu calling it a complete, quote-unquote, surrender to Lebanon by the Lapid government, uh, no matter that all of Israel's security chiefs supported the deal, uh, and they saw it as a better alternative than the threat of war and escalation, and a way to maybe, just maybe, help Lebanon avoid complete collapse, or as one Israeli military officer called it, Somalia on the Med. Uh, no matter, too, that the Kana field uh, is as yet unproven. Uh, it needs further exploration, to say nothing of exploitation. It'll take years before gas will be pumped out of this field, if at all. So Bibi may say, for his purposes, that Lebanon got 100% Israel got 0% from this deal. But even if it was reversed and Israel had gotten, say, 100% of the field, the last time I checked, 100% of zero, zero gas from the Kana field would still be zero if there was no deal. Uh, and same goes for if Israel had gotten, say, 55% of this field, 55% of zero 
still zero. Bottom line, nearly every deal Israel has struck with an Arab state or organization has entailed Israel making some kind of concession for what it viewed as major strategic benefits and upside. This was true of the peace deal with Egypt, where Israel withdrew from every inch of the Sinai Peninsula. It was true of the peace deal with Jordan, where Israel actually gave back borderland territory. Uh, It was true of the deal reached between Israel and the PLO during the Oslo Accords. Um, And it was also true of the normalization deal with the United Arab Emirates uh, that entailed no annexation of the West Bank by Israel. And it was also true, again, when Bibi Netanyahu was prime minister himself several years ago, and he began cutting deals with Hamas in Gaza. Suitcases of cash to Hamas in return for only one thing, a halt to rocket fire, no escalation, quiet, which was, and still is, viewed as an Israeli interest. So this is worth thinking about every time critics of this deal with Lebanon and critics of this Israeli government talk about Israeli capitulation in the face of terrorist threats. Let's get to Mohammed Darabashi. Hi, Mohammed. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Neri. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's our great pleasure to have you on, Mohammed, uh, especially at this critical moment uh, right before Israeli Election Day. And I think we have a lot to unpack in this episode on what I personally think will be the most important issue in the upcoming election, and that's the Arab-Israeli vote, uh, also referred to as uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, of course, uh, and they make up 20% of the country, some 2 million people, and correct me if I'm wrong, about a million voters, potentially? Uh, indeed, it's about a million voters. That makes it about 17% of the voters in Israel. So. Although we're talking about 21% of the population, but East Jerusalemites are not citizens, they're only residents, and as such, they do not qualify to vote in the national elections only. They have the right to vote in the municipal elections. It's a right that they also do not exercise. Right, right. They're they're residents and not citizens, so no, no right to vote in the national elections. So... I wanted to start here and make some sense for our listeners of the Arab-Israeli political map. Uh, Until recently, there was one unified list called the Joint List, which was made up of the four predominantly Arab-Israeli parties. But that's obviously no longer the case. Uh, The Joint List has splintered uh, into what we now have are three separate lists that are running in this campaign. So, Mohammed, who are these parties that are running and... What happened to the joint list? Well, the joint list, which uh, gathered uh, the biggest Arab turnout uh, in 2015, uh, basically represents uh, almost, at the time, they represented almost 88% of the Arab voters. 88% of the Arab voters voted for the uh, joint list, believing that uh, there is no real difference between uh, the Arab political parties and uh, the shades of difference are very minimal and uh, should not be represented in a separate uh, political entity. And uh, the leadership of the political parties actually wanted to highlight the difference, I would say mostly in order to improve their positioning in the list of who comes in first, second, third, 
And uh, I think that the ego, whether it is personal or partisan uh, ego, uh, meaning the ego of the political parties, uh, was very dominant up to the level that uh, it uh, fragmented uh, the joint list uh, into uh, the three current fragments that are running uh, separately. Uh, and uh, in the past, they used to, as I said, they used to represent the mainstream Arab perspective, which basically says we don't need a communist party, we don't need a nationalist party, we don't need uh, uh, an Islamist party, an Islamist party, an Islamist religious party. We need a party that represents the common denominator of uh, the Arab community and ask the leadership of these three separate parties to work out their differences. So they did in 2015, mostly as a knee-jerk reaction in fear of not passing the threshold, which was increased to three and a quarter percent of the total vote in Israel. It was, it's called the Lieberman uh, uh, law, yes. uh, which was made specifically to try to uh, eliminate some of the Arab parties uh, by increasing the threshold. And instead of eliminating them, it contributed to them actually dropping out their ego and going into a joint list. Uh, but it seems that uh, that combination, that uh, a joint list did not uh, last because of a number of reasons. One, they did not create any mechanism of uh, how to manage their differences. They did not create any mechanism of how to uh, organize their list, who comes in first, second, or third. And uh, they continued their uh, language in, in Arabic, you know, probably their behavior towards the Jewish-Israeli politics was similar by 99%, but their behavior towards the Arab voters was uh, still very partisan, and where the Communist Party uh, insisted its part, uh, communist uh, ideology and uh, where the uh, Islamist party focused on their Islamic uh, uh, angle and where the nationalist party Balad focused on their nationalist party and where Ahmad Tibi, who tried to be uh, more mainstream, uh, actually was the uh, probably not, uh, not the dominant voice in this debate. Uh, but these parties couldn't figure out the dynamics I also think that there was a big problem of, of leadership. The joint list was headed by uh, Ayman Odi, who's the head of uh, Hadash, uh, mainly the communist component. And uh, he suffered from challenges all the time coming from his own party that uh, did not accept his leadership. Many, many groups in his, in his party did not accept his leadership. And uh, they kept challenging him and uh, uh, putting him in very embarrassing situations. So every time he would take a position in the national scene, his party would negate that position. And uh, that weakened him. And as such, he couldn't really behave as a proper leader of the joint list because he couldn't behave as a proper leader of his own political party. So you're sketching out a scenario where it's more, say, personal issues, technical issues, and less issues really of ideology or strategy that led to exactly. the demise of the joint list. Exactly. I, mean, I think that the Arab voters do not see the, I call them the shades of ideology between the three parties, because when it comes to how you implement this ideology afterwards in the Knesset floor, 
in 99% of the cases, their vote was the same. And the remaining 1%, it was not negative or it was not uh, uh, the negative perspective, but sort of uh, uh, maybe abstaining or staying out of the floor. Uh, uh, so towards the, the in the arena where they go to play in the political arena in the Knesset, the public says, what's the difference? It's, it's only in the music. It's not the real ideology. At the end of the day, they all talk about equality, about uh, expanding the definition of the state of Israel so that it also includes its civic democratic nature. Uh, they all focus on the need to improve the quality of life of, of uh, Arab citizens. And uh, all of them haven't really succeeded in delivering anything of significance to the Arab community. And as such, the voter says so. At least, you know, get together and be together and show collective power. Maybe your collective power might have some weight in politics and not just a, a, a higher representation, but higher impact. And that's what the voters were looking for. So hold that thought. We're going to get into the current campaign and the upcoming election in just a little bit. Um, so just to make some order, we have, you mentioned Ayman Ode's party, uh, Hadash which is predominantly, uh, I guess, the Communist Party here. Um, we have Ahmed Tibi's Ta'al Party, which is the, I guess, Palestinian Nationalist Party, but I guess a bit more moderate. Uh, yeah, it's more centrist. I would call it the centrist party. Centrist party. Uh, we have Mansour Abbas, uh, famously the head of the Ram Party, the, the Islamist Party, uh, which was... Uh, also famously part of the outgoing coalition government, first time ever. Uh, and then we have Balad, which uh, I guess is the more radical, hardline nationalist party. It's a more nationalist, uh, nationalist party. Okay. So there are, I suppose, some differences of ideology, but you're saying that overall, uh, in terms of the Arab-Israeli political scene, those ideological differences aren't aren't as major as maybe the politicians like to portray it. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. And the proof was uh, when they joined together and they, they ironed their differences and they figured out a mechanism to uh, put the joint list, they got 15 seats, which is the highest representation ever in Israel's history. And uh, they also, and, and their 15 seats were a result of uh, 88% of the Arab voters gave them their vote. They gave them their trust. 88%. Right. The highest ever. Right. Uh, and when they started fragmenting, the turnout rate started dropping, and the share of uh, the turnout was also low. So in the last elections, the turnout rate dropped to almost 44%, and uh, the share of the Arab parties uh, dropped to uh, 79%. Right. Uh, and much less seats in the Knesset. Uh, we'll get to that also in just a, a second. Um, so aside from, I guess, the, the political parties, let's take a look at the state of Arab-Israeli society. Uh, very curious to get your take about the core issues or motivations animating Arab-Israelis today. Uh, we hear a lot about, you know, the out of control, violent crime rate in Arab towns and cities. We hear a lot about uh, housing permissions and permits and land, budgetary support for things like education and government services. Um, and also, obviously, there's longstanding issues like uh, the occupation or Al-Aqsa. So 
from the perspective of Arab Israelis, how would you rank these priorities? Um, we hear a lot, especially over the past year uh, with the Mansour Abbas experiment, that Arab Israelis now care more about, quote unquote, civil issues like housing and crime and are less focused these days on political or diplomatic issues like, say, the Arab-Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Well, Neri, I think that the Arab citizens are beginning to behave as uh, Israeli citizens more and more, Hmm. which means they're beginning to get more selfish, caring about themselves, caring about their own uh, quality of life, about their future, and about their destiny. And I think this is a process that actually started maybe in 1992 with the Oslo Accords when there was an official Palestinian leadership that became legitimate in the eyes of Israel to negotiate on behalf of the Palestinians. And then the Arab citizens started asking the question, okay, who negotiate on on behalf of the Arab citizens themselves? And that started the whole process of uh, challenging the political arena and trying to find political place for Arab citizens inside Israel. And as such, the issues started also changing priorities. So the priority stopped being peace and war with the Palestinians because that file was basically assumed by the leadership of the Palestinian people. And it was easy to say that uh, and to support that when the Palestinians were with one uh, uh, Palestinian voice until Hamas took over in 2006 and there was the Palestinian split which put the Arab citizens in some kind of a confused place for a couple of years, but then actually in a a more distant place where most Arab citizens are saying, okay, as long as the Palestinians do not get their act together, we don't know whom to support, so we are not going to lend our utmost support for their cause unless they come with one agenda. Meanwhile, we have life to live. We have a a future to, to develop. Our destiny is going to remain inside Israel even after a cross-border agreement with the Palestinians. So how do we manage this life? How do we manage it? I would call it the vertical debate about whose state is it? How do we make Israel not only the state of the Jewish people, but also the state of its citizens? That's one uh, arena. And the second arena is what I call the horizontal discourse, issues of social economic uh, issues. So on social economic issues, Arab citizens are gaining more and more power in the universities, in the medical industry, in the high-tech industry, in the finance industry. Uh, there is what I call social economic Israelization, which does not reflect itself properly inside the Arab towns and villages, which continue to be neglected and behind uh, uh, the average of Israeli society. So more and more Arab citizens are exposed to modernization and quality of life during their nine to five hours when they're working in the Jewish communities, when they're working in Jewish towns. And when they go home, they find uh, maybe just hostels instead of uh, uh, three or four or five star homes waiting for them. And uh, they see and watch the Jewish community enjoy that star level a quality of life, and they, they say, why not us? And as such, the anger about the discrepancy and the discrimination and the quality of life between Jews and Arabs becomes much more significant because of the higher exposure of Arab citizens to the Israeli Jewish quality of life. 
And uh, we see also a huge drive for uh, modernization that uh, whether it is in the percentage of Arab women that are in the labor market, which increased in the last 15 years from 17% of Arab women that worked to almost 45% of Arab women working today. Wow. Percentage of students in universities jumped from 3.5% 20 years ago to 19% of students in, in Israeli universities today. Uh, and, and this mobility in the social economic uh, arena also is beginning to reflect itself in the agendas. People want quality of life. They want better roads. They want cleaner streets. They want at least two, three times collection of garbage and not only once every two weeks. They don't want the smell of garbage in front of their house. And they want also policing, which guarantees proper, safe streets. And and the negligence of the police and the negligence of the Ministry of Interior and the negligence of Ministry of Transportation uh, is uh, facing less tolerance uh, in, in the Arab community. And the leadership is basically asked now to reprioritize its agenda so that when they go to the Knesset, they're not only representing the anger and pain of Arab citizens regarding internal politics uh, towards Arab citizens or regarding occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. They want delivery. They want change. They want to play the full game of Israeli politics. They say, we give you 88% of our vote. What do you do with it? How do you deliver? How do you get us more rooms in the classroom so we have only 25 children in a classroom similar to a Jewish school and not 35 kids? And where the attention of the teacher is divided to 35 kids instead of 25 kids, and which means that the quality of education is reduced. So people are becoming more selfish. They compare themselves more and more to the Israeli Jewish quality of life, social economic life, and they say, we want the same. We pay the same taxes. We pay the same duties to society. And as such, we demand our leaders to bring us that quality to our homes. And unfortunately, the marginality of our politicians over the years has not contributed to their ability to deliver. And that resulted with reduced interest in political participation because people are saying, okay, we played, first of all, the game of voting to Zionist Jewish political parties. Until about the year 2000, almost 70% of Arab voters voted to Jewish Zionist political parties. That did not bring any good results. Then they started moving to vote to Arab political parties up to giving them 88% of the vote in 2015. That also didn't work. And as such, people started pulling out. They started voting with their feet instead of voting with their hands. And and that's a dynamics that cannot be uh, challenged only by nice ideology and nice uh, uh, slogans. There is a demand now to change strategy, uh, one, of the Arab political parties, two, of the Jewish political center-left parties, who maybe give us nice talk about peace with the Palestinians and about promise of equality. But when they are in government, they do not deliver and they do not bring in, bring in any real results. But third, and I think this is most important, is some kind of uh, dissatisfaction with the political atmosphere in Israel regarding the uh, political status of Arab citizens 
a process that started by Benjamin Netanyahu uh, 13 years ago and by a series of legislations that uh, de- de- degrade or, or tr- series of uh, legislations that uh, reduce the status of Arab citizens as legitimate citizens. This process was crowned by the nation state law. And basically, it's kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction that we feel that says, okay, if the Jewish state doesn't want us as equals, so why do we? Sh- why should we continue to decorate their, their democracy by participating in the elections? As long as the nation-state law is there, we don't want to play their game. The nation-state law says there are two Israels. One Israel, which is the first-grade Israel for Jews, and the second Israel, which is second-grade Israel, and that's for Jews and Arabs. And we don't want to play in the second uh, in the secondary arena, uh, and we want to challenge the uh, nation-state law, which is constitutionally defines Israel as only a Jewish state and excludes Israel as being also the state of its citizens at the same time. Right. So one Arab politician who did very prominently shift strategy last year was Mansour Abbas, right? Uh, the head of the Ram party. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the first to break with the joint list. He went off on his own ahead of the election last year, uh, which was round four. And he made it into the Knesset, he and his party, and they actually f- were part of the coalition government. Uh, the first time ever an Arab political party took that, took that step. Uh, Abbas also very publicly touted his his own approach of further integration, being part uh, not only of the coalition, but also recognizing Israel as a Jewish state uh, and renouncing terrorist attacks. Uh, again, all historic. So a year after Abbas made this dramatic move, what would you assess as a general impression in Arab-Israeli society about him, his party, and this, this overall strategy? Did it pay off? Well, I mean, first of all, his promise paid off by the fact that he got into the Knesset and got four seats, much higher than he's ever gotten before. Uh, And now he seems to be in the safe zone, meaning that he will likely pass the threshold. So he didn't lose much from uh, his experience in the last year and a half as being part of the coalition. But he also didn't gain much. Uh, and the main reason is that he got a lot of promises, a lot of good dynamics with uh, uh, with the government and with the other members of the coalition. But he also got a lot of bad dynamics with the coalition, specifically speaking with Ayelet Shaked, the Minister of uh, uh, Interior, which Interior. pretty much emptied every accomplishment that he had. So, for example, he had uh, he passed an agreement and a decision to connect Arab homes that are not uh, licensed to connect them with electricity. And Ayala uh, Chaked basically uh, passed in a resolution that uh, meant that no Arab home would get connected with electricity. So he celebrated for two, three months his accomplishment, which was only rhetoric when on the ground it didn't really uh, connect any single home, uh, leaving almost 50,000 homes unconnected to electricity which means they are still angry at him. And they're maybe even angrier because he they feel they pl- he played them and he gave them empty promises and wasn't able to really play the full coalition game completely. And he wasn't able to really deliver what the promises 
on also that 30 billion shekels plan where a lot of wonderful plans were planned, put in there, but no proper mechanisms uh, uh, for implementation. A lot of money was promised and allocated, right? Tens of billions of shekels. Yeah, pro- no, promised, but not promised but, and allocated, but not delivered. Uh, and it still sits in the government budget. And many of the, much of that money, which is even appropriated for 2022, if it's not used by the end of 22, it will go back to the, uh, uh, to the treasury and Arab citizens are not going to benefit from it. And, and that's what he's really been measured. He's been measured not on his rhetoric. On his rhetoric, I think he still gets the four seats that he got from the past uh, elections. Uh, and But people are saying, well, we, we haven't seen that your uh, fast, uh, uh, very uh, significant effort in go- going and speaking Jewish. Basically, <laughs> was speaking to the Jewish ear yes, in Hebrew. Uh, all the time in Hebrew. That didn't pay off. Uh, he got a lot of credibility and a lot of airtime on radio and television, maybe a lot of even respect for his courage to, th- to say things that are unusual to be said by an Arab political leader. So he's, he's getting a lot of credit in, in Jewish uh, arenas, and he might even get, uh, I heard him speaking, saying that he might get 10, 10 to 15,000 Jewish votes that might uh, even uh, vote for him, which is nice. But is that going to be a, a, a mechanism that will allow him to grow from uh, four to six seats maybe? I doubt it. It seems that uh, he lost the coalition too early. He probably would have benefited from one more year where he can show even partial uh, results. I think most people say that his path is the right path, but his way is not the right way. He's giving too many gifts to the Israeli Jewish ears without uh, any uh, result on the ground in the streets of Arab towns and villages. And uh, I think he's, he's the one that is paying the dearest price because of the early elections call. Uh, if you would have had, uh, if you ask our public today, is entering the coalition the right thing to do? 67% say yes. They want our political parties to vote, but uh, only 60% want to, they, no, I'm sorry, they want our political parties to be in the coalition. But at the same time, only 40% want to participate in the elections lower than the last turnout rate, which was almost 45%. But out of those that say we don't want to vote, 47% of them want Arab parties to be part of the coalition. So there's clarity that there is very significant majority. 67% they say we want to be part of the coalition. You're talking about very practical community that believes in the path of Mansour Abbas but do not believe in the way that he's doing it. Uh, he's, he's done it with too many free gifts that he's given to the Jewish community, consensions and, and acceptance of, of, of uh, positions and perspectives that uh, are maybe, maybe it's about time to give them, maybe it's too early to give them. I mean, there's a debate about this, but the fact that he gave them with no real reward makes many people second guess whether they want to do it again or not. So you, you raise an interesting point, Mohammed, because it confuses me to see those polls showing almost 70% of Arab Israelis want uh, greater involvement in, in 
national government, really, which is historic, you know, effectively involvement in a Zionist government. Um, but at the same time, like you said, turnout in the upcoming election on November 1st is supposed to be maybe historic lows, you know, maybe maybe 45 percent like last time on a good day. Uh, but I heard very good day now. <laughs> right, but I heard analysts talk about maybe as low as forty percent, which means just less or thirty-eight percent. Right, which means just effectively less Arab representation in Knesset, if at all. If at all, that means thirty-eight percent might mean that none of the Arab political parties might uh, get into the Knesset. And out of uh, Arab voters, you all it seems that almost twenty percent will vote for Jewish parties. And so take 20% out of 38%, you're down to almost 30%. And uh, you need each party, to need, in order to get in, it needs 16% of the Arab vote. And not enough votes, you know, with uh, 30% going to Arab parties, no matter how you divide it, all the three parties are in the danger zone. So I guess my question is, how do you reconcile those two competing and contradictory impulses by Arab-Israeli voters? On the one hand, they want... to influence national politics and, and to, like you said, improve their daily lives. Uh, but on the other hand, they, they may just not vote. Uh, is it because of well, the, think, the frustration with the Arab political parties? Is it a frustration with this outgoing government and the lack of deliverables that Abbas can, can stand up and show? I mean, is it a combination of the two? As I said, it's a combination of the three. It's also... the dissatisfaction or uh, also from the political scene that does not see the Arab citizens as legitimate equal citizens. But overall, I think uh, uh, there is a rational analysis here. I mean, the Arab community is saying that to Mansour Abbas, your path is right, but we want a better negotiator. You haven't negotiated well enough, and clearly you gave, 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 but you didn't get Uh, they're also saying to uh, Ayman Odi and Ahmad Tibi, uh, you're not at all negotiators. You, you went and uh, uh, recommended uh, at the time Benny Gantz to, for prime minister. Then you recommended Lapid for prime minister. And what did you get in exchange? Airtime, that's it. So, you know, podium time on the Knesset, that's it. Where, where are the seats and chairs in classrooms? and new books, textbooks that are up upgraded so that they can suit the uh, job market and the education market in Israel. How much have you done there? Clearly, I mean, they think they've done a lot, but the Arab public thinks it's not enough because the, we compare ourselves to the status of the Jewish citizens in Israel, which in which we have daily interaction. So there is a, there is an, you know, there's an account open with the Arab political leadership, There's an account also with the center-left, so people are not opting to vote for Meretz and Labour Party and Yair Lapid because they say, well, you're not also attentive to our language, our needs, and one of those needs is peace policy with the Palestinians. So Lapid was, uh, uh, there was a likelihood uh, about a year, sorry, about a month ago, that uh, uh, Lapid could have garnered and uh, uh, got maybe three seats of the Arab, uh, of the Arab uh, voters. This was only a month ago. That was the assessment. Today, he probably will get less than one seat from the Arab parties. Why? Because of uh, the war in Gaza that uh, took place about a month ago, because of what's happening in Jenin mm -hmm. and in uh, Nablus, 
so the Palestinian agenda is also forcing itself uh, within these politi- within the current uh, campaign, where the Arab citizens are saying, if the center left is behaving as right wing B class, uh, why should we vote for them? If they are trying to imitate Likud type gov- uh, policy or right wing type policy in relationship to the Palestinians, also. Uh, then uh, uh, the chairs and jobs are and education is not uh, sufficient. We 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 want also policy that gets us uh, into the mainstream legitimacy of Israel, and that can only happen through solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Arab citizens will never become full Israeli citizens where issue their issues can be seen as pure c- civil rights issues as long as they're still seen part of that enemy, as long as they're still seen part of the Palestinian enemy. And uh, as long as there's war with the Palestinians, Israeli Jews will continue to see Arab citizens as Palestinians who are part of the bigger problem. And that's why it's a vested interest for Arab citizens to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not that much only out of love for the Palestinians, but also out of their selfishness to say, let's finish this war between our state and our people in order for us to be able to focus on civil rights agenda purely and not on nationalist agenda. That's clearly not the perspective of everyone. The uh, Balad, which is the nationalist Arab party, says, no, 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 you can't uh, separate. The only agenda, the only problem that Arab citizens have is because of their national ethnic identity And as such, you will never have equality and you'll never have the chance for real integration in Israeli society. So let's not uh, even engage in coalition building. Uh, Clearly, how many people are going to vote for them? Now they're getting about 1.6% of the national uh, uh, vote. That's what polls give them. And in in Arab politics, that's about probably 8% of the Arab voters. So 8% of Arab citizens believe in this agenda that we need to continue focusing on the identity agenda, on national identity politics. And while the rest are saying, 92% are saying, no, we don't want that. We want civil rights agenda. But in order to focus and get to civil rights agenda, peace has to happen with the Palestinians as well. And when they see parties, political parties, such as center-left, completely neglecting the peace agenda. They also don't vote for this option, and they're stuck with either voting to Arab political parties that are not able to deliver or not voting at all. So it's interesting. Uh, Yesterday, actually, I was on a reporting trip in Um al-Fakhim and Wadi Ara, uh, which is in northern Israel, uh, Arab uh, city and and villages. Uh, And... I was struck, I was told that in campaigns past, you did have Jewish slash Zionist parties actually putting up billboards and campaigning in a place like Um Al-Fakhim. But yesterday, it was nowhere to be seen. Not merit signs, not labor signs, not Yeshatid signs, uh, only only the Arab parties. Uh, Not even, by the way, Netanyahu and Likud signs, uh, unlike past campaigns. And... And like you said, uh, I spoke to a number of people in Um Al-Fakhim and the surrounding areas, and, and they had the same criticism, um, that uh, this, this outgoing government uh, with a lot of uh, left-wing parties and even uh, a, a labor 
Minister of Internal Security, Omar Barlev, uh, were were just as harsh in their opinion uh, vis-a-vis things like uh, Al-Aqsa and, and clashes at Al-Aqsa in Jerusalem and uh, counter-terror operations in the West Bank. And uh, and like you said, uh, they said, you know, basically, w- what is the difference between these left-wing Israeli parties and the right-wing parties? Um, I happen to personally disagree, but I understand where they were coming from. Well, I also disagree, but um, but I also I very much understand where they're coming from, and I understand their political behavior, uh, which seems to be uh, not in their best interest. You know, the political behavior of any minority, their best interest is to vote for the, maybe the less evil, <laughs> even you know, even if that's your only option. Uh, but it seems that the mood right now, first of all, let's punish our political leaders, our own political leaders. Maybe we'll get fresh new political leaders that or, or political strategy, because this strategy is not working. And maybe we also are punishing the center-left by giving them a slap in the face and saying to them, wake up. Jewish-Arab political partnership needs to be uh, a much dif- much more different when you promise, first of all, you need to deliver. There was a center-left government that did not deliver. So when you make a promise to Mansour Abbas, you need to deliver. Uh, and uh, if you want to be an alternative to Netanyahu, it's not just, a, a, we, we are not in a, in a personal agenda. We're not an anti-Netanyahu camp. We are in pro-peace camp. We are pro-equality camp, so you need to deliver on peace, you need to deliver on equality. There was a lot of good uh, reception for Yair Lapid's uh, uh, speech at the UN, but that was not followed with any action. The action was actually in the opposite side, in Jenin and Ramallah, and without any diplomatic uh, effort, not from him, not from, let's say, even the head of Labour Party, uh, to possibly meet with one of the Palestinian leaders to show that maybe there is no Palestinian-Israeli negotiations, but there is a potential for that. You know, What we want, what Arab citizens want, maybe not that much. We don't have a peace plan, but we want at least a peace process that the Israelis and the Palestinians will agree on. We're not going to be the ones that will write the uh, details of the process. But without a process, we feel that we cannot complete our Israelization process completely. We cannot really go as deep as we want and to become fully Israelis as long as we are seen as part, as supporters of the government. And that's a problem that Mansour Abbas is facing. He's now being uh, blamed for supporting uh, occupation measures uh, and oppressive measures as being part of a coalition that is uh, carrying those campaigns against the Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, also sometime in Gaza uh, a month ago. And he's seen that he, you know, he's paying the price of being part of a government that does that work in exchange of what? Either in exchange of a peace process, which doesn't exist, or in exchange of you know, better streets, cleaner streets, less uh, uh, casualties. We lost 100 Arab citizens in the last uh, uh, 10 months as casualties of crime. That's more than 70, 75% of the casualties of crime in Israel. 75% while we're only 20% of the population. That's almost four or five times more than our weight in society. This is an irrational situation that the political leadership needs to solve. Yes, it doesn't get resolved in one day or one month, 
But how about a year and a half? Nothing. Yeah. I guess uh, I think Lapid gave an interview today to Arabic media, and he said that while uh, crime is obviously much too high in violent crime and murders in, in Arab cities and towns, uh, that there was a, a slight decrease uh, this year relative to last year. Um, but again, small comfort when you're, when you're actually living uh, in this kind of situation with no personal security. I'm not, I'm not sure his figures are updated. We're now at 100 Last year, we lost 121 people, So, and uh, the year is still fresh. Yes. We still have two and a half months to catch up, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Um, so, Mohammed, uh, brass tacks uh, come November 1st. Uh, what do you expect will happen? So you mentioned that you think uh, Mansour Abbas and Ram should be fa- fairly safe, just above the the four-seat threshold for entry into Knesset. Uh, you mentioned the Balad was polling at uh, around 1%, a bit above 1%. They're likely not going to make it in. Um, and then we have the combination of the Hadash Tal list, which is also hovering right around the electoral threshold. So, uh, I mean, what's, what's your best analysis slash guess? Do you think Hadash Tal and Ram will, will make it in and they'll have, you know, four four seats each? Is there a possibility like you raised and that I heard yesterday uh, in, in Wadi Ara that you could have a situation come November 1st or November 2nd that you have no Arab res- representation in Knesset? That is very likely, unfortunately. Uh, I would say we have if I would assess uh, uh, Ram's uh, potential, I think they are 90% safe in being able to pass the threshold. Depends on the dynamics of the next weeks, uh, the next two weeks. Uh, if they don't make any mistakes, I think they will pass the threshold. Uh, then there is uh, with the, uh, uh, Hadash and the Tal, I think uh, they're only 50% safe. Uh, they are really going into bad dynamics. Uh, they're going down uh, over the last month. I think they're decreasing uh, by the by the minute. They're mostly losing the younger voters. Uh, they still have the solid uh, foundation of the older voters, uh, but the younger voters are challenging uh, them significantly. Mostly, they're losing voters to uh, uh, ballot. Uh, who come with a more uh, challenging approach and uh, embarrassing uh, to Hadash. Uh, so most of the voters that are moving from Hadash Tal, they're moving uh, to Balad. But I don't think that will be sufficient for Balad to uh, help it into entering the, uh, the, the Knesset. I think there, you know, there is a likelihood in the next couple of weeks to bounce back in the turnout rate from the current 38, 40% to potentially 45%. Uh, and if we deduct 20% of that, that will bring us to around uh, 38% or so, uh, or 37%. That might be enough for two parties to pass, which will mean that we might get uh, eight seats. So if I would bet, I would bet that that's the likelihood if we're able to increase the turnout, and I think it's critical to do efforts in this direction in the next uh, two weeks, I think it's too late to convince people in the Arab community ideologically about whom to vote. Uh, I think the main point is just go vote. And even if, if, if they just throw, a, a, you know, a pick a lottery between the 
three Arab political parties or maybe one of two or two of the center-left political parties that might be relevant to their agenda. Even if it's a lottery, I think it's important for them uh, to throw that uh, number and, and the gamble on one of them uh, because the alternative will be going back to uh, the similar period of the 12 years of uh, drought in Jewish-Arab relations, which was uh, symbolic for Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, it was a very difficult period. Uh, 27 anti-Arab, anti-democratic laws were passed uh, during the Netanyahu's watch. And we might go to that uh, uh, arena again. Uh, and as such, I think that uh, low turnout rate is, uh, is self-punishment of the Arab community. Uh, but it seems that the anger now is more significant and powerful than the brain in the Arab community. Uh, I hope that uh, the efforts to increase the turnout rate will bear fruit. Uh, right now, they're not convincing enough. Uh, they're not creating a, a shift in the direction. Uh, the campaigns of the Arab political parties are specifically of Hadash Tal, which until recently was the biggest Arab party, are not convincing. They're very shy. Uh, they are very uh, marginal. They focus on secondary issues. They don't have any uh, new figures and new names that are attractive to the Arab public. They do not show any uh, uh, new uh, uh, agenda, uh, pretty much uh, uh, rehashing and reusing and recycling uh, old uh, sentences and statements. Uh, Ballad seems to be uh, growing very, very slowly, uh, but I also think they have a glass ceiling for their growth. I do not think they can ever pass the threshold uh, with their political agenda. Ideologically, their, their, their arena is very, very limited. They cannot get the 15 to 16% of the Arab vote. They've never gotten above 12, 13% in the past. I don't think they have uh, the capacity to get to there now. Uh, with Mansour Abbas, I think that uh, he's, he's right around where he was. He didn't really uh, get too much damage, but he didn't get also too much uh, uh, new capacity. Uh, the embrace of uh, Lapid to, to his campaign and the embrace that he's getting from uh, Benny Gantz and the Labour Party seems to help him uh, remain an option for those that want to be part of the coalition. Uh, but that embrace is preventing people to come to him from uh, people that have open account with uh, uh, the agendas of Labour Party and the uh, Yesh Atid and the uh, Merits and Labour Party. So it's what, from one end, it keeps his base, but it also prevents him from growing. And also, you know, the, the, the one thing that he did well last time and he didn't do well this time was reaching out to non-Islamist members in his party. He had, uh, in the last elections, he had Mazen Ghanayim, the mayor of Sakhnin, who was not a member of the Islamic movement. He was a, a sort of external support or external coalition from the secular Arab community. He doesn't have any figure like that in his in his party right now, so he's less attractive to the non-religious uh, uh, population.
and it is more seen as Shah's type of religious party. Uh, and then and he's losing, he's, he doesn't have the capacity to appeal to non-religious uh, uh, community. While, you know, going back to Khadash, Khadash seems to have the syndrome of Mapai, Labour Party, which seemed to be the dominant hegemonic <laughs> party in the past, slowly deteriorating and aging and becoming less relevant to the younger generation. So, Mohammed, last two questions. Number one, let's say more pessimistically, uh, and I heard this too over the past week in, in my reporting, that when you come and you pose these these issues, these dilemmas to an Arab-Israeli voter, uh, like you said, they're, they're voting... Uh, through anger and maybe not through kind of rational uh, logic. I mean, I hate to use that that term, uh, but you raised it first, first of all. Uh, but they, you know, when you post to them that okay, if you don't come out and vote, then you're, you know, you slash Israel will get a fully right wing government led by Bibi Netanyahu again, and uh, with Itamar Ben Gvir, the Kahanist, uh, you know, interior interior minister or, or public security minister, and. I was surprised, I guess, to hear that, well, uh, you know, the situation of Arab Israelis is is so bad that that that's fine. That's more of a threat to liberal Jewish society here than it really is to Arab Israelis. That 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 threat, the threat of a of a BB led fully far right government doesn't doesn't resonate enough to get Arab Israelis to to the ballots. I mean, I agree with this because and I think it's a right assessment because Arab citizens as I say, you know, first of all, I said they don't see the different shades and the different colors between our political parties. They also don't see the different colors in the center left political parties. And they are expecting, they were expecting from this government, the one that is uh, currently in, in control, they were expecting more. And uh, the expectation was to uh, not be similar to right wing uh, political, uh, right wing government or specifically when it comes to delivery to Arab citizens and also when it comes to the Palestinian fight. And and here, uh, the rhetoric was very well heard and very well respected. And I think that, uh, as I said earlier, a month ago, the language in the Arab community was different before the last campaign on Gaza. Lapid himself would have been able to get three seats, and he lost those three seats because he wanted to maybe talk to the Jewish soft right in order to attract those two, three seats from the uh, Jewish soft right. He seems to be able successful in doing that and maybe was hoping to correct relationship with the Arab uh, citizens, but I'm not sure if there's enough time. So today he's making uh, gestures. Uh, I think that maybe if he does more gestures, that might help him with the Arab community. The question is, is this going to damage him in the soft right, in the Israeli Jewish community? So there's a balance that seems need that he needs to to play. Uh, it seems you know I I I'm, I'm an optimist person, so my optimism says that if the center left political leaders will talk to Arab ears better in in more calming language, in more confident language, saying we hear you, we hear your anger, we hear your frustration, we promise to implement, we will implement, uh, uh, then we might be able to rebounce in, in the turnout rate where center-left might be able to get one or two more seats from the Arab party, from the Arab public, and maybe Arab political parties might be able to get one to two seats and then secure 
at least two parties, the eight seats in the Knesset, uh, maybe providing similar kind of representation, meaning eight seats for our political parties plus two seats that might go for center-left. But the, the language here is very, very uh, uh, critical at this stage. Uh, the public, uh, the majority has already made their point uh, of whom they want to vote if they, want, if they are going to vote. But those that have not made their point to vote, I think I, I saw uh, almost 21% of Arab citizens are, that, that said in the last week that they are not going to vote, but they are they're willing to reconsider that. It's 21%. So if all of them agree to vote, that brings us to 62%. If half of them agree, gets us to 51%, then at least two of the Arab or even uh, at least two of the Arab political parties will be not only in safe zone, but one of them might be able to get even five seats. Uh, and, and the battle is on, on those 21% that said, that are in a position saying, we don't want to vote. We're, we're angry. We're frustrated, but we, we likely we might vote. You know, they they are not antagonistic. They're frustrated, and the language has to be convincing language. And it's it's not enough for our political leaders to speak to them. It's also there's a requisite requirement for Jewish center left political leaders to speak to them. Uh, absolutely, uh, and let's continue, Mohammed, with that more positive thinking and less. Uh pessimistic thinking. Uh, I guess the final question is, if both Ram and Hadash Tal make it over the electoral threshold and, you know, get four or five seats each, um, do you think there's a possibility, just given current polling, that Yair Lapid, uh, in forming possibly a next government, uh, could use the votes of Hadash Tal Right, he likely already has the votes of Mansour Abbas and Ram for any future coalition like he had last year, but for Hadash Tal to actually support, actively support a Lapid government, uh, either as part of a coalition, I think that's less likely, but maybe outside of a coalition, but supportive of a Lapid coalition. Do you think that's uh, a possibility? I think Hadash Tal will behave uh, differently. Uh, I think that Hadash and Tal will each have a different strategy. Uh, I think Ahmad Tibi from Tal will be more likely to actually want to join a coalition and maybe become even a minister. I think he has more uh, appetite than Mansour Abbas also on the personal level. Khadash, uh, I believe, will not join the coalition, but will be willing probably to give uh, what's called safety net, similar to how Khadash and Democratic Arab Party behaved with the, uh, the government of uh, Rabin between 1992 and 1996. Uh, they gave an outside safety net support, meaning guaranteeing that they vote with him in critical votes such as vote of confidence and budget. And in exchange, they got written commitment. At the time, it was 28 uh, points that Moshe Shachal on behalf of Rabin signed with our political parties that those would be the, the deliverables. This is the agreement. Uh, and in exchange, as I say, this given that safety net on the critical votes. Uh, so it will be limping government uh, that uh, will not have an automatic majority in every vote, but will have a majority to pass a, a, a confidence vote agreements or confidence votes in uh, bills 
and as such secure itself at least for maybe another year or two. Uh, I don't think this kind of an arrangement can last for too long, but this might be an incentive for maybe uh, soft-right parties or maybe religious Jewish parties once they see that this government is more stable and was going to be uh, the reality in Israel, then maybe one of those parties will uh, end up uh, joining, as Shas did with uh, uh, Rabin. With Rabin in 1992. Right. Uh, well, hopefully. Um, but again, we said that last year too, uh, after this outgoing coalition government was formed. And uh, we're back to where we were uh, over a year ago, uh, yet another election. Um, Mohammed. Thank you so much for taking the time to break it all down for us. Uh, like I said, I think the Arab-Israeli politics and voting turnout uh, will be the critical factor come November 1st. So thank you. Let's hope more people will vote. Uh, yes. And it will actually become critical. Yes, yes. Uh, thanks again. Talk to you soon. Thank you, Neri. Okay, that was a great Mohammed Darawshe. Many thanks to him for his generous time and insights. Uh, again, a reminder to register for our upcoming post-election web briefing on November 7th, as well as to take part in our online listener survey. Both links can be found in these episode notes. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.